There was a saying in the preaching class I was in in seminary that you want to take the unfamiliar and make it familiar. So like my job as a preacher, I'm to take what's unfamiliar to you, the book of Nahum, okay? Nahum, I have no idea what that's all about. I'm supposed to take that and make it familiar to you so you say, oh, this is accessible to me now. But on the other hand, I'm to take what's familiar and make it unfamiliar. In other words, a, a text you've read a hundred times. Yeah, I know that one. If, I, if I'm preaching a familiar text, I want to make it unfamiliar to you to, to where you're like, I've never thought about it that way before. And so that's my goal today is I want to take what I think is a familiar verse and I want to study this verse with you and I want to bring out some things that I've noticed in it. I want to make some observations. I want us to interact over it and we will see what the Lord might show us through this interaction. The text is 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we've done this in the past. I was thinking I would do it at least once a year, and if I'm correct about this, the last time we did it was 2019. So it's been a couple years and you know I like to not just jump into a text. I want to ask some preliminary questions such as, where is this text located? Well, it's in the New Testament. Why is that important? Because the way I interpret a text is going to be different if it's Moses in the wilderness talking to the people of Israel. There's a different context. There's a different relationship. There is a completely different theological thing going on there in redemptive history. And I want to make sure that I'm putting on the right lens to understand what I'm reading. So we know this is in the New Testament. What genre of literature is it? This is considered didactic, which means straightforward teaching. So you look through your Bible and you've got historical narrative and you've got prophecy, you've got law, you've got psalm, you've got proverb. And didactic is like the most plain and clear teaching in the Scripture. This is not poetic where we have to try to interpret what the sense of the verse is. Like when it says that God will shelter you under His wings, we know, hey, this is poetry. God does not have wings. Sorry, Mormons. So we want to make sure we interpret it rightly and figuring out what the kind of text is is very important. Who is the author? We know this is Paul. This is undisputed. If you look at 1 Corinthians 1.1, he introduces himself. Who is the audience? This is the church in Corinth. What is the purpose of the letter? This is a corrective letter to the Corinthian church in response to questions that they had for Paul. Now, you might sit down at a verse and say, well, how am I supposed to know that? A lot of you have study Bibles. Even most modern Bibles will have a brief paragraph in the, at the beginning of that book and just give you a little blurb about when they think it was written and who the author is 
and what the point of the letter is. A lot of Bibles today have that. And then, of course, we want to know the context. What has come right before this? And right before this verse that we all know, it's a coffee mug verse, you know, it's like a lot of people have memorized this verse. We have some very hard words from Paul. He's recounting the history of Israel. He's recounting their idolatry as a nation. And he says to them, beware that you don't do the same things that they did. So, in fact, I'll read a couple verses. Verse 6, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So he's talking about their idolatry, their sexual immorality, their unbelief, and he says, all those things happened back then for your sake. So they would be written down so they would help you to honor Christ. And then right before our verse... It says in verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So it's this big, heavy warning. Beware. Watch yourselves. And it's kind of scary and it's kind of weighty. And it's this fear that you're going to fall. And what do I do if I fall? And then... He gives us verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, I want to do a Bible study with you I didn't study commentaries to prepare for this. I have taught on this before, so it's not really um, it's not it's not fair to you. But my point is, I'm I'm making observations in the text and just figuring out what they mean so that I can make sense of the whole. If you want to be a good Bible student, that's all that's involved. You're looking at the text and you're making observations and you're making connections and you're figuring out exactly what God is saying. And men write commentaries, and the best commentaries are the ones who make the best observations. That's it. So the first observation I make about this is, I want to understand temptation. This is the subject of this verse. He mentions it three times. So I want to say, okay, what does that word mean? Now here's where my background comes in to help me that you might not have unless you look it up, but I know from my study that this Greek word has a broad range of meaning. Okay? It can mean to test, to examine, to put to the test, examination, testing, or it can mean to tempt, to trap, to lead into temptation. Temptation. So it can mean to test or a tr- or it could mean a trial, or it can mean a temptation. 
So if if the same word means all those things, how do the translators know how how to translate it in a verse? How, How do you think they know? Context, right? So... Here's one place it shows up in Luke, Luke 10.25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Same Greek word that is temptation in ours. This is the verb form. Here's another place it shows up. James 1.2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Same Greek word. Mark 1.13, and Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So this, this one word has a range, doesn't it? Trials, temptation, testing. Now can you see in those words that they sort of overlap each other? I mean, a temptation is a trial and it is a testing, you see? So, so while they are separate definitions, they kind of overlap each other. And what I find with this is that they all point to the same thing. There's a fork in the road, whether you call it a test or a trial or a temptation, whether I'm going to do God's will or whether I'm going to do my will. Right? So if it's a temptation to sin, you run into this fork. If it's a trial, you still run into this same fork in the road. So, will this difficult situation lead me to sin or will it lead me to obedience? So, let's say you're running late for an appointment and you're on the freeway and you get a flat tire. I would call that a trial. This is a trial. It's not trials that our brothers and sisters in China are suffering, but for our context, it's a trial in our life, right? I got a doctor's appointment, I'm going to be late, now I have a flat tire. And within that trial is a temptation and a test, right? So the temptation is, am I going to respond in sin or am I going to this test or am I going to respond in righteousness, So there's that fork in the road. Or let's say you have, you get a bill in the mail and you are on a fixed income and this is a surprise expense and you do not have the money to pay for this. And the temptation, the trial, the test that's all conflating into one is, am I going to respond righteously or am I going to respond sinfully? Am I going to respond in anger or am I going to respond in worry Or am I going to say, the Lord has provided for me in the past. The Lord is going to provide for me today. Don't know how He's going to do it, but I've seen Him do it a thousand times. So temptation is the first word that I'm interested in in this sentence. It's important I understand what I'm talking about here. What, What is the text talking about? The next thing is overtaken you. So, one thing you can do, you don't need to be a Greek scholar, but these days we have access to all kinds of resources. There's a website I go on to, I can see 25 translations at once. So I can type in 1 Corinthians 10.13, I think it's biblehub.com, 
and I can see 25 translations at a glance of the same verse in English. So you can look up various versions of the English Bible to see how they translated it to get a good idea of what the word, the word means. 95% of them say overtaken. That's what the ESV says. Here's a few that broke away from that. The Holman Christian Standard Version says, No temptation has come upon you. So that's similar. The Berean Bible, many of you probably have not even heard of that one. No temptation has seized you. And then the King James Version, um, No temptation hath taken you. So, this gives you some idea that there is a trial, there is a temptation, there is a testing, there is some life interruption that was not planned and that grabs hold of you to bring you to a point of decision. What am I going to do? How am I going to respond? There is an interruption in your life that is not something you would have chosen. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. So, when I'm studying a, a verse like this, I'm asking lots of questions, and sometimes what I like to do is rephrase a verse and put it in my own words. Oops, I'm not going to let you see that. So, so, if I'm working on a sermon, a lot of times I'll look at, I'll, I'll study the verse, I'll read through it over and over, and then I'll write it out in my own words. And the reason I do that is not because I'm trying to improve upon the translation, but I'm trying to make sure that I can make sense of what's being said here. And so I will, on a piece of paper, rewrite that sentence or passage to, to, to put it in my own vernacular. So how could you rephrase that sentence to just put it in your own words? Does someone want to give it a shot? How could you rephrase the 1 Corinthians 10.13, what's on the screen? I'll give you a hint. There's two negatives in there and you could just make it a positive statement. Well, no one's daring enough to try it. Taking you by surprise? Okay, I don't I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't use taking it by surprise. I don't think that's the emphasis. But thank you. That was a good try. Yes. Every trial you encounter is common. Good. I came up with something similar. Every temptation you experience is also experienced by others. So I would rewrite that on a piece of paper just to make sure I'm thinking about this. Like, there's two no's in there. There's two no, not, and it's like, okay, let me just try to make sense of this another way. Every temptation you experience is also experienced by others. Okay, now I know what I'm dealing with here. Now, just as a side note, pull over for a second. How does this knowledge help you in your struggle? Just think about it for a second. This is not part of the interpretation part, but how would that help any of you in your struggle? Huh? You're not alone? 
maybe there's someone in the church who has gone through that and has overcome it and has wisdom there. Good. I wrote down a few things. You feel less isolated. You recognize your trial is not unusual. Like, oh man, no one's ever struggled with that sin before. It connects you to the struggles of others, maybe even in the same body, same pew you're sitting in. Temptation is a normal part of Christian life. Okay, so this is, there's lots of good news here for you personally to, to live out in relationship to God. So moving on, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, we talked about context a little bit. So the context is scary because it's talking about the Israelites who perished in the wilderness because of their sin. And the last verse before this one says, take heed lest you fall. And so the person might be thinking, well, what happens if I fall? I mean, this, this, is, this is heavy. He says in verse 5 that God was not pleased with most of them. He says in verse 7 they were idolaters. He says in verse 8 they indulged in sexual immorality. He says in verse 9 they were dis- some were destroyed by serpents. And you're thinking, these people saw God part the Red Sea. They saw Him in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. They, they saw the works of God, and they fell away. What if I fall away who have not seen the works of God in that way? So verse 13 becomes good news because the first thing he tells them is their struggle is common. Whatever they encounter is common to man. But the second good news thing that he says is this, that God is faithful. God is faithful. So he's going to specifically describe how God is faithful, but what's, what does faithful mean? What's a synonym for faithful? Reliable. Trustworthy. Good. Dependable. Yes. So, His faithfulness is going to be seen in that He's going to intervene and He's going to prevent something from happening. So here's the weak Christian who's got lots of sin and he's very aware of it and he loves Christ but he's afraid he's going to fall away. God is faithful and He's going to intervene somehow and it's going to be a restraining kind of intervention. He's going to keep you from being swept away and being lost again. See that? He says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So after all of those weighty verses, this is a a comforting verse. He's saying He will not allow a trial or temptation to come in your life that is so great that it is going to completely crush you. He's not going to let it happen. Now, what does this tell us 
about our trials and temptations. If God is there and He's going to restrain the level of temptation, what does that tell us about temptation? It can be overcome. That's the first thing I thought. It can be overcome. Say again. God knows about it. That's a good one. Susie? There's a choice. There's a purpose. Good. God's going to... God is in this thing. That's what I wrote down too in capital letters. God is in this thing. So God is not a million miles away looking down with a scowl on His face thinking, you better come through this. I'm watching you. You better come through. God is somehow in this thing, this temptation. So that there's a weight that temptation brings that if it's not restrained by God, could have the ability to crush us where there's a breaking point where we would do nothing but sin if God did not limit it. Okay, so picture that. If God did not limit the temptation that is coming towards us, there is a point, a breaking point where we would do nothing but sin every time. But God's restraining it. Do you know the only person who He didn't do that with? Christ. Christ experienced the full weight of temptation. And He had to do that and He had to overcome it so He could be our substitute. So, you and I have a limited durability when it comes to trials, tempting, and and temptation. Trials, testing, and temptation. And God says He's never going to let that happen. He has His hand on the lever, so to speak. He has His hand on the lever. He knows your breaking point. He knows what would crush you. He knows what you can endure. And He is involved. And He says He's not going to let it happen beyond your ability. That's mind-blowing stuff, I think. That's huge. So let's talk about God's relationship to temptation. Because I'm saying God God has a, a lever and He's not letting it go beyond a certain point. That sounds like you're saying God is tempting me. Let's just make it super clear. We're going to pull over for a minute. Here's a verse we are probably familiar with James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and He Himself tempts no one. So God never tempts anyone and yet at the same time, He ordains that there be temptation in your life. Huge difference. He's not doing the tempting but He ordains that temptation exists in your life. Here's an example with Jesus. Luke 4, 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Notice, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This was also very important so that he would be the one who overcomes on our behalf. But what's, is there a contradiction here? No. God does not tempt anyone, but he arranges circumstances in which temptation exists, and he has a purpose for that, just like he had a purpose in the life of Jesus. Now, why does he do it with you? We know why he did it with Jesus. Jesus had to be the second Adam. He had to be the perfect human being, perfect human representative on our behalf so that we would gain his righteousness and he would take our sin and we could have a relationship with God. But why does he do it with you? Well, we find this in several places. James 1, 2-4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, when you meet trials of various kinds, there's our word. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, the temptation that God has ordained has a purpose in your life, and that purpose is to make you, is to perfect you. That the purpose is to make you like Jesus. And so, that's good news because that means when you get the flat tire and you're late for your appointments, or you get the check in the mail that you don't have the money to pay, you think not only that God is in this, but you think that God is at work in this to make me more like Jesus. And what a kind thing for a holy, eternal, perfect God to do than to make us like His perfect Son. So we don't want to have an attitude like, well, I guess God's teaching me a lesson. I guess I have to go through this because God wants to teach me a lesson. I've heard that. Like people have an attitude about it. No, it's so much more wonderful than that. God is, God is forming you to be like Jesus. Like He is the potter, you are the clay, and He is pressing in and making this beautiful work of art out of you. So let's lose the attitude, and we may not rejoice at the circumstance. Like, oh, this is so great, my car broke down. But we can have joy in the circumstance because we know that God is at work. Another verse, we're still pulling over here. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There's our word. Why do we have trials? So that, there's the purpose clause, going to tell us why, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
In other words, He's making you into this beautiful trophy of His grace and it's going to be seen at the end of all things. And it's going to result in praise. Okay, let's go back to our text. So God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That means He's involved in your sanctification. He's involved in your trials. He is committed to your growth and your maturity. The next thing that stands out to me is this thing that says your ability. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, I can't say with 100% certainty, but this makes me think our abilities to endure might be different from one another. I don't think this just means the human ability. I have a feeling this means your ability, your ability, your ability, your ability. So I think there's a personal aspect to this where a a reader can read this and say, God is, God is with me in this. He's faithful in this. He's got His hand on the lever. He's not going to let me get crushed by it. And He knows what is going to crush me. So He knows my range. And He's not going to take it further than that. So what might change your ability from mine? There could be all kinds of factors. Your, your spiritual maturity, your personality your background, your, pre- your prior struggles with sin, who knows. But we know that there's good news here, and we know that it is that God is faithful. So he says, He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape. And you quickly want to run and say, what's the way of escape? But we first want to deal with this. He will also. What is that? Also? What does also mean? It means in addition to something else. If I say I'm going to buy you breakfast and I'm also going to take you to a movie, the also, the movie only makes sense if I say also because there's something else with it. And if you don't have something else with it, the also is meaningless. And we know Scripture doesn't have meaningless words, so it's there for a reason. He doesn't say, but with the temptation, He will provide the way of escape. He says also. So there's a two things that God is doing here. The first thing, He is restraining something. You remember that? He will not let something happen. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. The second thing, He will also provide the way of escape. So temptation comes. God is doing two things at least. He is limiting the intensity of the temptation and He is providing a way out of it. He will also provide the way of escape. Now, as a very young believer, 1997 Pacific Beach Bible Church, Pastor Wayne Atkins, I'd meet with him once a week, and he gave me these little cards with Bible verses to memorize, and I'd keep them in my pocket at work, and I would pull them out once in a while and read it and read it and read it. And this was one of those verses. 
and I did not know anything about the Bible, and I thought the way of escape meant that temptation was going to come and God was going to provide a way out for me, like the phone was going to ring, or there'd be a knock at the door, and maybe I'm just about to sin, I'm just about to be angry, I'm just about to whatever, and there'd be some kind of thing that diverts me away from that sin, and that's not what it means at all. (laughs) Because there's a definite article there, it's not a way of escape, like the knock at the door or the phone call, but it's the way of escape. That makes me think there's a singular way of escape. That there's one way. It's the way. Now does anyone want to guess what the way is? Huh? Obedience? That's a good guess. I'm going to call on someone at random. I'm just kidding. I won't do that. Don't worry. Abby, the Holy Spirit, okay, good guess. See if anyone has one more. The Word of God, okay. So I think think the answer is that God is the way of escape. Like, duh, why didn't I think of that? God. He is always the way of escape. He is the way out of our temptation to sin. He's the way out of our trial. He's the way out of our testing. It's Him. So let's read some more of the verse and see if this helps us. He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, if you think about just that, the wording of that by itself, it sounds very strange to me the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, I thought we were escaping this thing. I would think it would say that you may be free from it. Doesn't that sound like a way of escape to you? If I'm stuck in some situation, the way of escape is like I get out of that situation completely. Lord, get me out of this thing as quickly as you can. But he does not say that. He says that you may be able to endure it. Why would God have you endure it? Why would God have you to endure it? Kind of already given the answer to this one. Because He's making us like Christ. And there's this thing called the refiner's fire that the Bible talks about, and it purifies. And the way that it purifies is it's painful. And it comes in the form of trials, temptations, and testings. So God does not free us from it per se, but He gives us the ability to endure the temptation. So I think the way of escape is that we go to God. So here comes the, here comes the temptation, the trial, get the flat tire on the freeway and you want to explode in anger or you want to crumble in anxiety and fear or whatever, and you instead go to God and you say, Lord, I know that you are the sovereign of the universe and nothing is outside of your control and for whatever reason you've allowed this to happen, Lord, would you please help me to trust in you now and and what happens to the temptation to sin? 
all of a sudden, your, your faith starts to swell and your eyes get bigger and your whole vision of the, the situation changes and you start to see God in the midst of the thing. Why would God have this? I wonder what God is up to. I don't know, but I bet He's up to something good. And so it's a, it's a, it's a change of focus. James 4, 7, and 8 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I think there's a relationship here. I used to always misquote this verse. I'd, I'd say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. As if I just have this power in and of myself that I can just chase him away. No, submit yourselves to God. Who is the God of temptation? Satan. He is the one who comes and frustrates us and he wants us to sin. And we submit ourselves to God by going to him, surrendering our will to him. And then the devil goes, and he's gone. So God is our strength. God is our power. God is the one we run to when we encounter any kind of trial or temptation or testing. He is the way of escape. John Quincy Adams once said, every temptation is an opportunity of our getting nearer to God. How's that for looking at temptation in a different light? Wow, this is an opportunity for me to get closer to God. Instead of murmuring, instead of complaining, instead of sinning, I can know God better through this. Doesn't mean it's fun, doesn't mean it feels good, doesn't mean you want to stay in that place of pain, but it does mean you might discover something more wonderful there than you had imagined. Let's pray. Father, thank You that even in the midst of our struggles and temptations, You are God and You are with us. You have not purposed us for wrath, but for salvation because all of Your wrath has been placed on Your Son. So help us to remember, Lord, when we are in the throes of temptation, that there is the way of escape. And that is to run to You and to find freedom from it. Help us, Lord. We are weak in so many ways and we need Your help. So please, Lord, bless Your church this week as we go out into the world, as we encounter many trials. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.